Welcome to another podcast-only episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. This is the continuation of our radio episode with Dr. John Gravenstein, a true world-class vaccine expert, PhD pharmacist, and we're just going to keep on talking about coronavirus vaccines with Dr. Gravenstein. John we touched briefly on it. Uh, so the answer right now is about how effective these will be for the longevity. We don't know. But what do we know about other coronaviruses and how people can get reinfected? Well, um, coronaviruses are one of the causes of the common cold. Uh, they, but that seems to be a fairly distant cousin to the, what we're grappling with, with uh, SARS and MERS and, and now COVID, COVID-19. The, um, how long, the, the, the number of reinfections, people getting COVID-19 twice is, is confused because, you know, there's false positives and false negatives. Yes. And all that kind of stuff. Yes. But so what, but I think really you're asking about how long would a vaccine be durable? Uh, you know, how long would durability of, of protection sure. be there? Um, so, you know, so yellow fever vaccine, one dose uh, protects you forever. Wow. Lifetime. And um, measles is very long. It actually, um, we, you need two doses of measles vaccine because you need to get to that 98, 99% uh, immunity to stop transmission. It's such a, a really transmissible virus. You need, it's got a really high uh, requirement in that way. Flu vaccine, um, uh, uh, pertussis is a relatively short-lived thing. And so every woman should get a dose of pertussis with every pregnancy because it's the, the pertussis part wears off, in a sense, the, the antibodies uh, fade away. So and each pathogen's a little different. How do they determine how many doses for the coronavirus vaccines? Uh, from those early trials, from the, you know, how did, how did the monkeys respond? And then how did the humans respond in the, um, in the, uh, in the phase one trials? Uh, I had an uh, investment person say, well, now, what does it say about candidate X that they had to use the lower dose, take the lower dose of the two doses they tested forward? And I said, well, they used the lower, the lower dose went forward with that company and the higher dose went forward with the other company and the middle <laughs> dose went forward with a third company. So it doesn't make <laughs> oh. um, it, this is This is one where the human bodies, we just, you know, we just have to, we have, the, the studies have to be done to, to find out the answers. And how many doses do most of the vaccine candidates require? Most of them require two. Uh, the ones that where we might get away with just a single dose are these adenovirus vectored vaccines we talked about. And um, again, it, it's not coincidental that it's a live virus that, that replicates a little bit, um, that, um, uh, you know, triggers a more robust immune response, you may let us get away with fewer doses. And how far apart are the two doses? A little bit different company to company, mostly 21 days or 28 days. Um, it could be that those adenovirus vectors are quickly protected with one dose, but if you want a prolonged protection, you might need a second dose. So a little bit of a mixed story there. And, you know, we, we talk about different ways of getting immunity and, you know, the two main ones being the antibodies and the cellular immunity with T cells, are they both necessary and both activated? I guess, in other words, if antibody production is low from a vaccine, could it still help if it triggers the cellular immunity? 
you basically need both. With tetanus, uh, you only need antibodies because you're basically just working, having the antibodies so you can neutralize toxins. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and so it's an unusual case. Um, but but in, in a, it, just about every other case, uh, you, you need both um, uh, antibodies and, and, and cellular immunity. It's easier to measure the antibodies, so the cellular stuff tends to get a little bit uh, short shrift, and you know the tools to measure it are relatively newer. Um, so, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I was I was going to just say, you know, there's so much going on in 2020, and we've seen just science progress so rapidly with these vaccines. What are some of the benefits of having so many vaccines developed, kind of at the same time? Well, so uh, the, the analogy usually given is it's it's. We, we don't have anything, so we want a lot of shots on goal. It's a hockey analogy, but because, <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe that protein will succeed, maybe it won't. Maybe that mRNA will succeed, maybe it won't. Maybe that adenovirus will succeed, maybe it won't. And in fact, they all seem to be succeeding relatively well. Now, where could we be, you know, when the dust settles? Do we have one of them is 60% effective and one of them is 80% effective and one of them is 90% effective? Maybe. But then the, you know each of the, just you know uh, each of those numbers has a confidence interval around it, like in in the in the polling error when when people are yes. polling yes. for the election. Um, but uh, you know we, we just have to wait and see. It, it could be that it's sixty percent effective at a longer duration. You know, and it you 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 get into these mixed uh, advantages yes. advantages lists. You mentioned adenovirus vaccines earlier, and is it correct that all of the adenovirus vaccines are made using cells from aborted babies? Yes. Um, the adenovirus uh, vaccines are, um, the, the nature of those viruses, are, those, those viruses in those vaccines are that they uh, are not um, uh, replication competent. They can't reproduce on their own. And so they need to be in cells. Well, that's true for all viruses. They need to be in particular cells that supplement a, uh, a missing protein. And uh, uh, regrettably, uh, HEK293 cells and PER-C6 cells are particular cell types that uh, have that supplement and allow those viruses to grow. Unfortunately, those two in those, they had very specific numbers because we can trace their um, provenance, and they come from two, exactly two aborted fetuses, intentionally aborted fetuses, uh, from the 80s, basically, and um, have a, and therefore are tainted with that history. Are there other options for growing th those viral particles? Uh, no, essentially, unfortunately. Um, so not every kind of virus grows in every kind of cell. So influenza viruses grow in chicken eggs, and so that's where most of the flu vaccines come from. No problem there. Um, coronaviruses in general don't grow in chicken eggs, um, so that's not a that's not an option in this case. It, it, in the case we were just talking about, it's the adenovirus technology that leads us into the other ah. um, that leads us into this HEK two ninety three and PERC six cells. So it's just a little bit of a different issue. Uh, but they, they all, all these things all add up as you're trying, as the companies, you're trying to explore options. Um, then it gets more complicated. The mRNAs don't need cells. They're synthesized, basically. But some of the assays have HEK-293 implications. And that's right. 
You know, John, one of the things that, especially talking to patients who are Catholic or another denomination who care about the moral implications of that, there's an association that I see a lot of folks make uh, with safety. Do you find from a secular perspective, apart from the moral problems with that, are there unique safety problems brought on by those cell lines? No, zero. So, so one of the one of the assertions is that uh, well, they've got they've got baby DNA in them, or, or right. something like that. And um, the 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 vaccines are produced in a way that that isolates and purifies the the virus part, uh, whatever that is, and um, only only as the nearest hint of a residue is anything else left. Well, that's not zero point zero 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 percent, it's not absolutely gone, uh, but there can be just very faint traces of the cell culture materials and that, that would include the cells. But um, the CDC, the FDA, uh, pre, uh, major universities, a uh, whole variety of the World Health Organization, all sorts of folks all around the world keep looking at vaccines um, with all kinds of huge surveillance programs looking for any kind of reason, sorry, regardless of, of reason, they look for any safety problems and they don't find them. So, so even if, uh, so because they don't find safety problems, I'm not worried about the DNA, but I'm also not worried about anything because they didn't find any safety so, problems. So things that, you know, I, I feel like I've come across stuff online that suggested that these cell lines, those vaccines developed from them, you're injecting aborted babies into your body, and those ones are more dangerous because of the abortions. Would you would you describe that as wholly inaccurate? Just not true. You know the the um, so um, we talked earlier about vaccines have to be the safest of all medications. Well, yes. we're at the point of trying to say um, with that Guillain Barre example. The CDC can measure that there's, a, uh, there's an elevated risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome after influenza vaccine in some years, not others, but some years, of one per million doses. I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty good microscope. Wow. That's a good confidence that interval that to be able to say that. What you'll, what you'll find online oftentimes is somebody saying, I got vaccinated, I got sick. I get, yes. My kid got sick. It, it happened after vaccination. Well, okay, so my sister had Guillain-Barre syndrome last year. Um, she didn't have any vaccines before it. So there, I'm going to wave my hands you yes. can see on the radio. <laughs> um, the, um, the, the, the rate of Guillain-Barre or, or autism or uh, thyroid disease or cancer or pick, pick your or suicide, pick, pick your unfortunate event will happen in unvaccinated people at a certain rate. Okay, that unfortunately. Then you look to see, well, what's the rate in vaccinated people? Right. It shouldn't be zero. It should be the same. Yes. My hands are now at the same level uh, <laughs> as I'm waving my hands. But the, the um, and so that's what they keep finding is that bad things happen, but they happen at the same rate in vaccinated people. And yes. Vaccinated people. So really for our listeners, the reason that the Catholic Church 
uh, wants to stay away from unethically produced vaccines is not because they have worse side effects. It's because they're unethically produced. We, we disagree. We believe it is wrong against human dignity to use those cells that way. And of course, we've talked on previous shows about, you know, how the Vatican said, if the only option is a vaccine produced in such a way, there is a reasonable way to receive it. As long as, like John said, we're waving our arms, we're doing something to try to convince vaccine manufacturers to make something ethically. And a lot of that is going on in the pandemic right now. And I, I always like to kind of give a little props to, to the CMA, especially after the new shingles vaccine came out. And quite, quite a public display was made for all of the vaccine manufacturers that, you know, we were going to intentionally be switching all of our use to this new ethically produced vaccine. So I think the public statement is a very important thing. We definitely try and do that on the show, but it's, it's worth noting that it is a moral objection we have, not a scientific or safety objection. Now, if there was a safety problem, we'd promote it, but, but there isn't. So it's, it'd be, it'd be false of us to claim something that isn't true. And we want to be data driven on this show, faith and data (laughs) coming together. So, uh, you've you may have already fully answered this, John, but do you have any other personal concerns about a vaccine before you receive one into your deltoid muscle or wherever they instill it? Uh, it's almost always a deltoid. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> even in the army. Um, so, uh, well, so people will sometimes phrase it as, are you going to get the COVID vaccine? And, the, and my answer is, well, I want to see the data. Show me the data. Uh, who signed the... Uh, um, the uh, release form out of the FDA, was it one of the career scientists or was it one of the political appointees? Uh, that'll tell us a lot. But I, I trust, I know a lot of the FDA scientists and I trust them uh, as, uh, for, the, for the rigor uh, that they apply. Um, I'm still going to read the, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a vaccine geek, so I'm going to read the <laughs> read the. Um, your, for the, for the listeners, you know, go to your trusted source and a learned source and not just the internet. Um, but you know, your, your family doc is going to, is going to be a good source of information for you. And, and it should be a data driven decision. And you should be able to ask questions like how effective is it? Not, you know, Oh, it works. Okay. What percent? And, uh, Oh, and how fast does it work? Uh, you need both doses, and, and you can expect a good effect a week or two after the second dose, that kind of thing. So, so be an informed consumer. Um, I, earlier on, I said I, I'm not afraid of vaccines because they're an intentional stimulus of the immune system, but we have unintentional stimuli of the right. immune system every day. And um, so uh, let, me, let me make sure that whether that, I answered your question. <laughs> when do you think... Most reasonably, we can assume to see the first vaccines injected into Americans outside a study. Um, I, if I had to pick a month, I'd say December, maybe late November, but I kind of doubt it. Uh, there was a new document from the FDA today clarifying um, that it's, you know, what its safety expectations are after those, you know, that needs to be two months after dose two. And that's, you know, setting the making sure that the bar is clear and the bar is uh, a bar is a good one, a proper, um, um, a proper level of evidence. So how many doses do you think will be available if the front runners get approved then? 
how soon, and then who gets them? I mean, there's a lot to that question. So start where so, you want. So it's early October, and the companies are already starting their major full-scale production runs. I don't, I, I'm not privy to you know, how many lots any one company has produced yet. But, but once they get up to, you know, in the, in the first few, you know, there's shakedown intervals as they work up their efficiencies and all that kind of stuff. Um, once, they hit, once they hit their stride, they should be making tens of millions of doses per month. So, so there'll be, you know, so, you know, there's not enough for everybody on day one or even month one, but after, you know, three or four months, there'll be a lot. And um, it won't be, you know, but it's, there's, you know, 3,000 counties and, and uh, you know, God bless the health departments who are gearing up <laughs> to do all this stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, and one of the you know, things it's, it's that a logistical challenge. We, we've, we've talked a bit about on this show as well is the, the ethical distribution, you know, especially COVID has brought forth some of the healthcare disparities that we see right. in, in other areas as well. How should these doses be given out? Who, who goes first? Yeah, so th- th- this is a well-recognized issue. Um, obviously, African-Americans, Hispanics have higher attack rates, you know, partially because they're in some unprotected roles, uh, um, uh, jobs, that sort of thing, less protected. Um, so there are, uh, several groups have, uh, have worked up uh, ethical frameworks for, uh, for what to do. And I'm thinking of two in particular. One is the um, uh, National Academy of Medicine, uh, which just released a report and um, uh, where the, you know they set up um, uh, three ethical principles: maximum benefit, equal concern, mi- uh, mitigation of inequities, and then procedural principles: fairness, transparency, evidence basis. So that that they are their job is to help the CDC. Uh, in in making the final plan, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, CDC has a has an additional advisory group of university professors, county health department people, state health department people, and they haven't uh, rendered their final um, decisions yet. But they'll certainly take that report into account. The ACIP, the second committee, says their values are equity, justice, fairness, transparency. You can see a lot of similar themes there. If, um, at the end of the day, the early rollouts are probably gonna to go to two kinds of people, uh, an occupational group, healthcare workers, um, and, and people know that's not just surgeons, that's the support staff, it's the housekeeping people, the, maybe the, uh, the dietary and uh, the kitchen and cafeteria people. Um, so, you know, and, and obviously, uh, unfortunately for socioeconomic reasons, the, They'll, some of the lower paying jobs are going to be a little disproportionately uh, African-American or Hispanic, maybe, depends on the community you're in. Um, and so, so but anyway, so the, the, the two primary groups, were, there'll be an occupational group and then a high risk group, a, a medically, medically compromised or medically at risk of death group that could be nursing home um, uh, residents, it could be, uh, it remains to be seen exactly how that will be defined. Because there's a lot of people with chronic diseases, uh, who's at most risk? That's, you know, sort of the, some of the calculations that are being made. And, you know, one, one of the things that, that kind of along this line is, uh, you know, when this whole thing started, our office um, ordered 
a rapid COVID test. And we got it last week (laughs) (laughs) after it hit the news cycle, like, I don't know, eight months ago, seven months ago. (laughs) It was hot technology eight months ago. Great. The vaccine's out. Uh, (laughs) you, You live in the world of vaccines. When do you think anybody who wants one could get one? When would that day be? Uh, I forgot to, we haven't talked about children yet. So for adults, uh, I think any adult who wants one will have one, I think next summer. Uh, you know, whether that's May, whether that's April or June, who knows? Um, but, but by summer, I think we've, we'll, we'll be, uh, um, um, you know, shouting from the rooftops. Now, another piece of safety is that the, the, the vaccines are, need to be shown to work in adults. And then effectively, it's a stair-step down thing. They'll be tested in teenagers, and they'll be tested in grade school kids, and then they'll be tested in little squirmy kids. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and fortunately, uh, the disease is less um, has, uh, has a lower attack rate in kids. It's really not zero, but lower in kids than adults. Um, if, if it was a kid-centric disease, uh, the trials would be rolling out in a bit different way. But, um, you know, so I think, you know, vaccination for school kids, uh, the, 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 kid, the pediatric trials would probably start January-ish, early, early 2021, you know, and, and, they'll, and they'll be probably antibody response. Show me that you can make as good an antibody response as an adult can, and that'll probably be enough to get, uh, get them licensed. And that could take another 6, 9, 12, 15, 18 months, something on that scale. I haven't, haven't seen anybody sketch out uh, uh, an estimate yet. So, John, if all the adults who want a vaccine can get one by next June, how soon do you think that masking and social distancing will become a memory instead of a day-to-day reality? Well, uh, okay, so you, get, you need two doses and you need to wait a couple of weeks to respond to the second dose. So for that whole, let's call it six weeks, you need to be masking. And then um, congratulations, you get exactly the performance that's in the prescribing information. So you <laughs> have a 70% chance, let's say, of being protected, or 80% chance, or 90% chance. Well, that means you have a 10 or 20 or 30% chance of not being immune. And so, um, but remember, you're masking. I, I mask to protect you. You mask to protect me. We're stopping right. those droplets from moving. Right. Um, but, I, but, you know, when would, the, when, when would the grocery stores not, you know, have the signs for masking and that sort of stuff? Uh, it's going to be a while. And, and how close to 100% protection do you want? You know, uh, is, is 70% good enough for you? Um, for us as a society, we, we got we got to talk about that. So it, it'll be something for a follow-up episode, in other words, when we have data. <laughs> I'll be back next spring. <laughs> when we have data. Oh, we want you before that, John. We'll have data before the spring, I'm, I'm sure of it. So, uh, John, I, I know we've, we talked about uh, a little bit the fact that um, – uh, you know, with vaccines, you re- might receive a little bit of uh, DNA into your body. But on some of your prepared answers, I thought you made uh, some excellent point that we're always receiving DNA from other species. Oh, yeah. It's in your hamburger. Yeah. Uh, and if you're <laughs> vegan, it's in your, uh, you know, spinach. Uh, it's in your food. And so you're, you're constantly getting DNA. 
And, and also when you were talking about Guillain-Barre, it applies to autism too. And right now, what is the evidence that autism is at a different rate in people that receive a certain vaccine versus those who don't? Uh, I think it's 12 different studies, maybe 15 that say it's not there. It's not that, um, I sometimes correct people, it's not that we have no evidence of vaccines causing autism. We have evidence of vaccines not causing autism. Gotcha. Uh, there is evidence, and it's it's in the no cause and effect relationship. I, I always like to point to uh, the, the Cochrane organization. They did a nice um, meta-analysis, and then right. I believe a few years back, the Institute of Medicine also did another meta-analysis. That's right. As far as the best data that doctors can come up with, um, really look into that. No, and, and from, you know, okay, I don't trust drug companies. I don't trust the government. I don't trust this and that. Everybody's coming up with the same answer, and they're not beholden to each other. And, and the university professors are saying the same thing. You know, same thing. It's, it's, it's just not there. So well, in that, some of the... Uh, the videos that have circulated, there is a claim that there is a hydrogel nanotechnology that's putting microchips into people through these vaccines. How, how can you respond to that, John? Um, the conspiracy people are getting sloppy with their terminology. Um, <laughs> so the first word in that uh, phrase was uh, hydrogel, which is probably a corruption of aluminum hydroxide gel. Very so good. We talked earlier about so a lot of vaccines um, have adjuvants, have helpers that um, that have aluminum salts, and you have to shake it to get a suspension. Right. Um, well, that the aluminum part is a salt. It's actually not, you know, in chemistry, it's not even a simple uh, like sodium chloride. It's a it's a gel. It's a it's a complex anion, and so it's aluminum hydroxide gel, or one of the brand names is alhydrogel. And somehow in that conspiracy, it got truncated to hydrogel. So that's that. <laughs> uh, nanotechnology, I, I, this is just science fiction stuff. I mean, you know, there's no, you can put a microchip in a dog, but you're doing it intentionally. There's no, there's no nanotechnology. There's no microchips in the vaccines. Well, FDA and, won't let them. <laughs> uh, another, another one that we have seen kind of floating around there is luciferase um, is the name of a bioluminescent enzyme that's contained in the vaccine and it somehow seems to be connected with lucifer or forces of evil should this concern our listeners yeah i don't think it was a vaccine component i think it was in an assay yes so luciferase is it's essentially the same chemical reaction as a i don't know whether they call them lightning bugs or fireflies where you live um, but it, it's it's bioluminescence it's making things glow some clever, you know, too clever scientist uh, named this compound because it glows. It, it, it makes light. And Lucifer means light, angel of light. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, let's see. And, oh, and then uh, another thing that people are concerned about is that the companies producing vaccines basically have a free hand to, to make mistakes and have no repercussions if there's harm or if they don't work. How do you respond to those claims, John? Not true. Um, so if, you, if, if the companies are negligent, if they intentionally do something improper, you can sue them flat out. Um, there, uh, back in the 80s, there were so many lawsuits against uh, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis vaccine and some others that companies stopped producing and the, and the country faced a um, shortage 
over a claim shown to not be true, that, that the vaccine caused uh, a particular kind of encephalitis. And so the um, US government said, okay, we're gonna change the um, liability system. So you don't sue, it, you, you know, you, 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 you well-intentioned, let's say, claim that the vaccine hurt your, hurt your uh, family member, uh, you don't, you family member don't sue the company, you sue Uncle Sam, you sue the government. And so the company is indemnified, but it's simply that that means they've passed over the liability to the government. It's not that there's no ability to, to get uh, redress, uh, it's that it's shifted from the company to the government. And so there's a whole uh, program uh, out of Health and Human Services that, that adjudicates these claims. Uh, awards some of them, doesn't award others. Others, um, so the companies aren't off the hook. You can you can still sue them for negligence, but but you can't sue them for spurry, essentially spurious claims or unfounded claims because the government because you would sue the government instead. And what about one of the things that I've had a lot of people ask about is long term consequences of something that's new. It was just invented. How do we know in twenty years people aren't going to grow a third arm? You know. Right. Yeah, the, the longest or the longest delay for an ad, a, a true adverse event to a vaccination that I can think of is this Guillain-Barre example, and it's basically eight weeks after vaccination. Um, and there, uh, there have been a whole variety of studies. I organized some of them in the Army looking back at databases to, to look whether those rates of adverse event in vaccinated and unvaccinated people over longer terms were there and they aren't or weren't or the ones we looked at. Um, and, and I come back to that comment I made of the human body is designed to uh, have your immune system stimulated. So vaccines aren't unnatural. Vaccines are very natural. Um, and, and uh, you know, um, they're, uh, long story there, but um, uh, you, you, you know the, the human body is built to take these things in stride. Do you think that the vaccine has become too politicized? And if so, what's a way out of the politis politicization of making a vaccine? Well, coronavirus vaccine, I assume. Yes, uh, that vaccine. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, so the, the the simple thing is to tell all the political appointees to sit down and let the career scientists um, set, the, set, the, uh, set the requirements and make the decisions. And um, so far that's happening. Uh, we're, not, you know, we're not over the goal line yet, but uh, um, I, I hope and trust that, uh, uh, that the career scientists uh, get to have the final answer. One, one of the things we've discussed with other folks on our show is that in Catholic social teaching, uh, we have uh, one of our pillars is solidarity and the idea that there's a social duty to receive vaccines to protect others. Would you say the coronavirus vaccine would fall under that same idea or did, would you say there's maybe a pass on this one because it's brand new? It could. I think it's a little too soon. Um, it's a, a couple of stories there. The uh, rubella vaccine. Um, we, the main purpose of uh, vaccinating against rubella is to prevent a really horrible birth defect syndrome. Um, and, uh, but that's a matter of uh, women who are pregnant 
having that trouble or, you know, if they're infected while the woman's pregnant. So what's the value of, a, of why do we vaccinate boys? Boy, rubella in boys is a rash. It's not birth defects because boys can't get, you know, men can't get pregnant. But the, but the social, the, 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 the quickest way to protect the infants, the fetuses, to, by protecting the women while they're pregnant was to vaccinate both genders. And so there's a, that's a social compact kind of a, kind of a situation. With, um, with coronavirus, there's a couple of things at play. One, you would be, the first reason to be vaccinated is to protect yourself. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the primary benefit. And then if, I, if by a lot of us being vaccinated, we can protect others, kids who have weakened immune systems or adults with cancer, or tra organ transplant recipients, all for the better, but that's a secondary thing. And, um, you know, I, I think early on, I don't think they're gonna, I don't think they're gonna be mandates for vaccination until there is a, you know, the, the accumulated experience base is probably in the millions um, that we are really confident of the safety, uh, our, our safety understanding. Um, but, at, you know, at, at some point, could it be a requirement for uh, work? Um, if you're a um, EMT or a ER worker or something like that, um, uh, and, and and then in, in we, at, at the point where we're talking about mandates, we're talking about the social compact. Yes, uh, and it, it, it's too soon to tell, um, and it needs more discussion. But you've said there are certain criteria for considering when a mandate might be reasonable. What are they? Yeah, it was an article I found in the New England Journal of Medicine just a couple of weeks ago, and. The, the, this isn't my work. This is this is uh, work of Mello, who is the lead author. They they came up with um, six uh, criteria before you would even beginning begin to consider mandating. And, and the, one of their first comments is mandates require exceptional levels of data. Um, that um, that voluntary uh, that, that there's a bunch of disease. You start there. There's got to be a lot of disease. Um, that the that the man, the group for which the mandate might be considered makes sense in terms of the vaccine working, the supply is sufficient to do it. There's a lot of safety and efficacy data, and it's communicated to the public, and um, uh, you know that it, that it's um, that it, that there's not a financial barrier, and the, and and the, the the sixth one is interesting that you try a voluntary program first. Good. Uh, so you know, it, it, you do it as a last resort. Or it, the, the the U.S. has has had mandates for school entry for a lot of vaccines for a long time. The U.K. didn't, uh, United Kingdom didn't until they had a lot of outbreaks and they couldn't get people vaccinated, and then they went to mandates. It, it's a it's a social. You know, there's uh, philosophy grad students can spend you know <laughs> gives them something to do. You know, we're doing them a favor. So, John, some people think that, you know, those under 20 have an incredibly low fatality and hospitalization rate with COVID. Um, is there a scenario in which vaccination for children is not recommended or should it be, but after they do those pediatric studies that you talked about? So the uh, studies underway are actually um, looking at people 18 and above. There's right. one study overseas, I think, that's going down to age five, but I don't know how far they, how long they are with that one. I, I think we're going to be in a situation of um, 
seeing how how much the outbreak can come under control by vaccinating adults and seeing if that is sufficient to reduce the burden in kids and then we then we'd reassess there, you know there's a you'll be familiar with this we, we talk about you you vaccinate kid um, kids uh, against influenza pneumococcal disease to protect their grandparents yes it's one of those indirect effects yes but is this going to be a case where you vaccinate the adults and it ends up protecting the kids indirectly yes too soon to tell very good if our listeners want to keep up to date on vaccines as lay people what are some of the best sources for them to go to um, for health advice or for vaccination advice, the CDC is the single best place. And, and the state health departments, most of the city, county health departments will repeat that information locally. Um, if they're uh, science geeks and they want to track the, uh, the vaccine candidates, the New York Times and the Washington Post have uh, trackers that uh, are sort of keeping score uh, and that sort of thing. Wikipedia's entry is pretty good. Um, ah, I use it. And um, uh, is that what you're doing every night at two in the morning? Is that <laughs> that and a few dozen other things? Um, uh, but yeah, there, there's and so yeah. I think those are those are some pretty reputable sources. And kind of the same question, but even more general about vaccination in general. A lot of people want to do their own research where's the best place to go regarding just figuring out about vaccines in general? Yeah. So let's define research here. Uh, doing a Google search and um, <laughs> is not research. Um, it, 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 you want to get information from people who are objective and reliable and are evidence-based, not people who are telling stories. And um, so the CDC is that, the FDA is that, the World Health Organization is that. If you don't trust the Americans, go look at the Canadian, uh, you know, counterparts because they'll tell you the same story. And so will they in Mexico if you can read Spanish well enough. Um, I've read, I was on Mexico's Independence Day was a couple weeks ago and we did a feature project highlighting their vaccination resources. Um, and I had to get my translator out. There's a, you know, the, the public health community is consistent. How many children's hospitals in the United States recommend vaccination? 100%. It's not a controversy. Um, and, uh, you know, so you, ask your children's hospital if they recommend vaccination. The, the, the point is, you know, uh, hearing somebody's complaint on you know one of the social media sites is not research research is research john how is getting a flu shot this year different than the importance of getting it last year so uh what we don't know is whether um so so in the winter or in, in when the weather gets cold uh, people spend more time indoors and they spend more time in groups uh even if you're um you know, still, uh, if you're not going into your office, you're, you're indoors more and you're not out in the, in the city parks as much. So uh, that's wonderful news for viruses of all sorts, uh, respiratory viruses that spread really well when people come close together indoors and, and that sort of thing. So that's why winter is flu season uh, for a variety of reasons, but that's, that explains it pretty well. And so uh, will the COVID rates really rise come 
Thanksgiving, people gathering together. Christmas, people gathering together, New Year's and February and all that. So uh, the, the risk is that the hospitals could get overwhelmed again. Right. And if you remember, you know, all those stories of New York City and the hospitals from back in um, March and April, you know, that was bad. So if that were to recur, um, we could have all those COVID cases and influenza cases that are filling up hospitals. And you, you'll tell stories of, of uh, you know, people uh, in uh, gurneys in hallways waiting for beds because the hospital's full of influenza patients or pneumococcal patients. And so if we can take, in the, the phrase my, some of my friends are using is, take influenza off the table. If we can prevent as much influenza as we can, so we only have to deal with the COVID cases, um, that's a win. And so that's why uh, getting a flu shot this year, if, if, you're, if you're a usual, if you're a habitual flu shot taker, God bless you, you'll get another one. If you are not, please do. Uh, because the um, you'll you'll make you could be opening up a bed in the hospital for somebody else. Yeah, I got my shot earlier this year than I ever have. I don't, know, Andrew, have you gotten yours? First, first one off the lot as soon as we got it here. You too, John. <laughs> mine is coming up uh, tomorrow. Oh, very good. Yeah, mine was like mid September. I'd never seen them available. I so was soon. impressed. I'll say we were always complaining about how long it takes to get the flu shot. This year, vaccine companies did pretty well with that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so they John, made more this year than ever. What final comments would you like to leave with listeners? Um, get a flu shot. Uh, wearing a mask is um, uh, being your brother's keeper. Just to remember when you speak, when you sing at church, when you. Um, cough and sneeze, you are sending out droplets. Your mask stops that, and my mask protects you. And then the other thing is uh, don't be afraid of vaccines. <laughs> vaccines are just an intentional stimulus of the immune system. Um, your food is not sterile. The air is not sterile. My desk is not sterile. Um, and uh, vaccines are good. Vaccines help. John Gravenstein, bless you for spending... Almost 90 minutes with us, filling us with all kinds of vaccine-related wisdom. We hope our listeners find uh, great solace from this. And signing off for Dr. Doctor, this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.